Dear Father in heaven, we pray now that you would bless us as we turn to this familiar scene. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts by your word and your spirit. May we seek, Lord, fresh blessings from this ancient account. The kind of blessings that only you can bring. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to turn now to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read there from verse 7. And then we're also going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and just read briefly from there. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then over to Second Peter in chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, And it goes on, of course, to talk about how we should then give earnest attention to the word of God and how men will be and women will be held accountable for it. But the part that we want to focus on here is what it says about Noah, how God spared, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah and that he was one of eight people. He was a preacher of righteousness when God brought the flood in upon the ungodly. I'll also ask you to go ahead and go back to Genesis chapter 6 because we're going to be looking there a little bit as we start out this morning. But you want to keep your place in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. Have you ever met someone who considered himself or herself to be an expert on or at least well acquainted with the story of Noah because they saw the Veggie Tale episode about Noah? Um, or because they saw the movie Noah, or maybe a Lego movie that somebody made in their living room or in their den, uh, by the, or out maybe out by the kiddie pool uh, in their backyard, or because they either taught or heard a lesson on Noah in Sunday school, or perhaps really got serious and watched a National Geographic special on finding the real Noah. Such people exist, though they may not openly acknowledge it, because it tends to be more of an attitude than an introductory point. What I mean by that is that uh, they don't necessarily introduce themselves to you as an expert on Noah. They don't come to you and say, Hi, my name's Buford, and I'm an expert on the flood. It's not the way 
they approach it or the way they believe they're an expert on the subject. Now, it's usually not spoken out loud at all. It's as, it's more of a thought. Oh, Noah and the flood. Okay, well, that's an interesting story, but I've heard it like a hundred times, and it doesn't sound very practical for my life. Or perhaps everybody pretty much knows that story. I certainly know it. Isn't there something in the New Testament, something we're less familiar with that we could learn more about, or perhaps something of more contemporary interest at least than that old story of Noah? Forgetting, of course, that we've already referenced two passages in the New Testament that talk about Noah. So it's not just an Old Testament story. Now, hopefully you notice that in my little list there, I didn't mention persons who have sincerely studied the scripture. That's because no one who has really and honestly studied the word of God would ever consider him or herself an expert on such things. Students of the word always come, beloved, to learn. No matter how much they have been taught from it already, they always come to learn. They always believe that there is something else that they can gain. The disciples of Christ recognize that when it comes to the providence of God in the lives of those from the past, like Noah, that as it says in 1 Corinthians 10:11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You notice how those two ideas are put together there? These things that we find written about Noah, these things that we find uh, throughout history that are written to us, are given to us by God, they are given to us for our instruction on whom the ends of the age have come. And they're there to give us a warning and to give us instruction and to teach us so that we don't think that we are in a position there where we cannot fall. But we understand that we need to take heed to these things and be instructed by them. The believer is also convinced that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. And that is there for the purpose that we may be complete and equipped to every good work so any part of the word carrying that kind of potential that Paul speaks of to Timothy is worth the time and the attention of the child of God in the whole world at any time so as students of God's word let's look at this account of Noah's faith again not assuming ourselves to be semi-experts on the matter, but as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, ready to hear and to learn from the Lord, who promises to bless his word and his people. Let's come believing what it says in Psalm 119 and verse 30, that the unfolding of his words gives light, and that it imparts understanding to the simple. 
And let's just come simply to this story. This morning I would ask you to consider four things about the life and times of Noah, and then four things about our own life and times. So beginning with the times, let's look for a moment at Genesis chapter 6. That is for the times of Noah. Uh, Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities, uh, begins with that famous sentence, it was the best of times, it was the worst. Very good. When we talk about the time of Noah, directly before the flood, it was simply the worst of times. Just the worst of times. God says by Moses here in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, if you look there, that he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The first four verses of this chapter, Genesis chapter 6, have uh, become a distraction because men and women have invented all sorts of fantastic scenarios to explain the plain language there, and most of them serve as nothing more than speculative diversions. And if you've already looked at Genesis chapter 6, you have your Bible up in front of you, you might say, well, we're going to talk about those secret and wonderful things that are described there, and we're not concerned with those things this morning. But rather, we're concerned with the clear description of the times in which Noah demonstrated his faith to the world. And that's what he did. He demonstrated his faith to the world in these unbelievable times of evil. You're told that in those days, wickedness abounded. That is, every morally corrupt, malicious, rebellious, vexing thing in the world abounded. It wasn't just present in the world, it was abounding in the world. The pot of human wickedness and evil was full and boiling over. The number of evils was beyond counting. The enormity of sin was shocking. And no immorality was too shameful to be indulged during those days. John Calvin says of the times, he might have pardoned sins of a less aggravated character. If in one part only of the world, impiety had reigned, other regions might have remained free from punishment. But now, when iniquity has reached its highest point and so pervaded the whole earth that integrity possesses no longer a single corner, it follows that the time for punishment has more than fully arrived. God's word tells us that in the sight of God, all the human mind envisioned and dreamed of in its heart all through every day and night were these evil things. It, it was on the mind, it was envisioned in the heart, day and night, continually, these evil things. 
Verses 11 and 12 put it this way. This is Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. The earth, we're told, was running to wreck and ruin in the eyes of God in the days of Noah. It was spilling into utter and complete self-destruction. The same ideas used to express what happens when, uh, to eyesight when you put out an eye. And it's used that way elsewhere in the Bible. That sort of irreversible ruin of one's vision that comes with the destruction of the eye serves as a good illustration of the course of corruption described here, the course of destruction that was plaguing the earth prior to the flood. It was destructive in its very character. John Trapp says, During these days the understanding was dark as hell and yet proud as the devil. The twelfth verse goes on even a bit further stating all flesh was corrupting or ruining itself. In other words, it wasn't just pulling down society, but people were destroying themselves. And Calvin adds here, Moses declares that men were not only perverse by habit and by the custom of evil living, but that wickedness was too deeply seated in their hearts to leave any hope of repentance. A prodigious wickedness then everywhere reigned so that the whole earth was covered with it. There's just one more thing to cover about the times of of Noah here in this context. And that is, although this was going on and the earth was going to ruin and men were ruining themselves, nobody cared. No one cared. It wasn't like the whole world was upset and and anxious and and feeling badly about it. They didn't care. And that lack of care is reflected for us in Matthew chapter 24 and verses 37 through 39. And it's Jesus who's speaking there. And Jesus is describing the days of Noah. And he says, For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And these verses are sometimes cited to express how evil the time will be when the Son of Man returns. But they reflect really something different than that. It's not a reflection of the evil of the times. It's the cold-hearted indifference of the times that's reflected here. They were eating and drinking as though nothing were wrong. They were giving in marriage as though there were no pending doom coming. It wasn't like tomorrow we're all going to die in a flood. It was, yeah, let's get married and have children, build families, build, build our businesses, have our industry, do whatever we want to do. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. That was the attitude of the people at the time. 
cold-hearted indifference to both the gospel that was being preached by Noah and the warning of the coming judgment. They had no expectation of judgment and so no need of the gospel and simply went about life as if neither had anything to do with them. They weren't involved in any of it. Now, we don't need to delve any further into the nature of these sins or how they were manifested in the lives of men and women. It's enough to know that their behavior brought on a bitter, horrific, and final judgment at the hand of the Creator. So that's the times of Noah. What about the call of Noah? Well, in this maelstrom of wickedness, God determined to show grace on one man and his family. We look at chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. So the Lord said, I will blot out out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, while the term favor is used by the ESV here to describe what Noah found in the eyes of God, it doesn't, in my opinion, and that of most other translators, give you the full understanding of the expression. It's the equivalent of saying that the walls of this room have glass in them. That's a true statement, isn't it? But there's something about the glass that makes it much more than just glass. And uh, it has to do with the color and the texture and the way it reflects into the room and so on. It's hardly adequate to express the whole nature of the glass just to say that we have walls of glass. Noah, by condescending grace on the part of God, was seen as righteous in the eyes of God and called to a great task. It's expressed in a slightly different way in chapter 7 and verse 1. If you look over there, in Genesis 7, 1, we read, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Or, for I have seen you righteous before me in this generation. I have chosen to look on you as righteous in this generation. Now Noah, as Mr. Brillhart pointed out last week, walked with God as Enoch did. Noah was a man of faith who walked and thereby lived by faith, and it was accounted to him by God as righteousness. And on that ground, Noah received his vital call to be, as Peter put it, a preacher of righteousness. Or as we might say, a preacher of that righteousness which comes by faith. When it says that he was blameless or flawless, it's the same word used to describe the animal that was considered fit for sacrifice. 
And you're supposed to bring the, the, the lamb of the, of the first year that was upon examination appeared to be flawless or without blemish. And that's the same word used here to speak of Noah. Now look at verses 13 and 14. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, of chapter 6 now I'm talking about, so Genesis six thirteen. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now notice what God says is exactly what nobody cares about. That an impending, devastating, and lasting judgment is on the way. And when Noah prepares for this, he demonstrates that he believes the word of God over and against the prevailing opinion of society. The prevailing opinion of society is that this is nothing and we don't need to worry about it. But when Noah goes to all the pain and the labor and the work to fulfill his calling to build the ark of gopher wood, he demonstrates that he believes God above and beyond the influence of the society around him. And then beyond that, he not only believes that this judgment is coming, but he is to seek out at the hand of God the way of salvation offered by God. And the way of salvation offered to him is build yourself an ark. Build an ark for you and your family. That's your calling. You build an ark at my command and I will keep you and all who enter it safe. Now, if we were to imagine in our minds that Noah is now to become a marine engineer and build for himself an ark that can withstand the storms and the tempests and the, the trial and the judgment that's to come for the next 40 days. And he's supposed to do that by himself. And the ark he builds, it'll be so good that even if God wanted to drown him, he couldn't do it. Because he'd be in this safe ark that he built by his own hands. If we imagine that, we're, we're, we're foolish to imagine things that way. He's to build this ark, but God's going to make it safe. Not Noah. It's God who's going to do this work of saving he and his family. So Noah was instructed to believe the word of God. And that required him to act in a way that was contrary to the prevailing thinking of society even contrary to what seemed to be reasonable. It was strange for this man to do this. It made him appear odd in the eyes of those around him. What's he doing? He's not just building a boat. He's building this big thing out of gopher wood. And he's lacing it with pitch and so on. It seemed odd or peculiar in the eyes of men and women. But it showed Noah to be a man of faith in the eyes of God. And it made him a preacher of righteousness. 
that righteousness that comes from faith to every generation before and after the flood. We'll not speculate or even invent any ideas about how his family's family or his neighbors viewed or or reacted to his behavior. We're not going to try to speculate on what happened. The scripture calls on us to focus on him and his obedience based on his faith and how the promise of God made to Noah was not only for himself, but for his children as well. The ark he was building was to carry the animals safely through the flood. And there's always a great deal of attention paid to that part of the story. But beloved, even more importantly, it was to be the safe haven for his children. It was for the animals. But the thing that the scripture highlights is that this was a safe haven for him and his children, and thereby to their children too. It's worth noting that when Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes God's purpose in preparing the ark, he doesn't mention the animal kingdom at all. Now, isn't that interesting when you consider how much emphasis we put on it? It's all about the animals, isn't it? But when Peter refers to it, talks about God preparing the ark, he doesn't say anything under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the animal kingdom. But he says that it was prepared for the keeping of eight persons alive to bring them safely through the waters of God's condemnation. It's those eight persons that are highlighted. And while I'm sure that as a godly man, Noah loved all the lesser creatures made by God, His efforts to build carefully were first in obedience to God, second for the welfare of his family, and beyond that followed all the rest of the motives. What Noah believed as he worked was what God promised. Again, chapter 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You don't find that kind of covenant made with the animal kingdom by God. God doesn't go to the lions and say, I want you to go into the ark because I'm going to make a covenant with you. He doesn't do that with them because they're not reasonable creatures. But he does that here with Noah. He says, build this ark now. And I will make a covenant with you. And you and your family, you get into that ark, and I will preserve you through this judgment. So that's the calling of Noah, to build this ark for he and his family as well as for the animals. Now we have the service. Well, how did he conduct the service? That's what he was called to do. What did he do? Well, verse 22 of chapter 6 tells you what he did. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah, in reverent fear, Hebrews tells us, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
But notice that the scripture is careful to point out that this man of faith did it all. He did all that God commanded. He did, as we might understand it, every and anything God commanded him to do. In another record you have of Noah, do you find a man taking shortcuts? Looking for ways to fulfill the spirit, if not necessarily the letter of God's commandment to him. This was a long, a lonely, a tedious, and a tiresome job to build this ark. As you saw a moment ago, Peter called it preparing the ark. And it strikes me as very significant that this is the same word. Peter uses the same word to refer to what God and Noah was, were doing in preparing the ark. It's the same word used in the Gospels to describe the work of John the Baptist regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was supposed to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior, just as Noah was supposed to prepare the way for the coming of the judgment and for the safety of the ark. Jesus, in describing John, says in Luke seven twenty seven, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Some translators say, who will construct the path or the road before you. Because it has to do with construction and preparing in that way. It was used to express the work necessary to do that, to build and equip a ship or make anything completely useful. The work of Noah ends with his stepping out onto the new earth and worshiping God with his whole family. Giving to God the glory for their safe passage into the new world. Genesis chapter 8, verse 18. Genesis eight eighteen says, So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So we have the times, we have his call, we have the character of his service. Uh, what was the result? Well, now we come back to Hebrews 11 and verse 7, where we read, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was, as we've already noted, a preacher of righteousness. But trace quickly here what's said, because first you're told that he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And he not only believed those things, but he lived as though he believed them. In other words, he just didn't confess his agreement with them and say, yeah, I believe a big judgment's coming. 
He lived as though he believed that judgment was on the way. He carried himself in a way that demonstrated he believed that. He made the inevitability of the as yet unseen events a priority. And that was so because his faith was working him. It was working in him effectually and it produced that godly fear which moved him to action. So let me go over that again. He made the inevitability of the unfolding of the as yet unseen events a priority. And he made it a priority because faith was working in him effectually. And that produced in him a godly fear which moved him to action. He had that reverence for God. He had that confidence that this judgment was coming. He had that confidence that this world was going to be flooded. And when it was flooded, all who were in it would be killed and sent into judgment. He believed that. And his belief in that and his trust in God's word and the promise that God would deliver him if he built this ark moved him to get building the ark and doing it quickly and efficiently as well as he could because he knew that the judgment was coming and he believed it. It says next that taking the matter as the word of God and therefore seriously or thoughtfully, he prepared, and yes, that's the same word from Peter, the same word that Jesus used concerning John, an ark for the saving of his household. Acting out of a faith that believed God and created a reverent fear, Noah did what seemed on the surface very strange. He spent years, perhaps, certainly months, building a boat for something no one else believed was ever going to happen. And he did it for the saving of his family. That's why he did it. And his ministry went beyond that because it condemns the unbelieving sinful world. And in people's minds, because of the way we read this in English, uh, it tends to be limited, this condemnation, to the pre-flood era, as if what Noah did condemned all those people before the flood for not believing God. But it seems better to leave the term indefinite, as it is in the Greek, and let it take in all ages. He condemns the unbelieving by what he did. Those before the flood and those since the flood. He condemns them in their unbelief. And as a preacher of righteousness, Noah serves a loving purpose. The most unloving thing that Noah could possibly have done, beloved, 
was to have built his ark under the covenant or under the cover of darkness. Or to have moved out of society and found some out-of-the-way people, to, a place rather, to construct this, where no one could see what was going on, where no one could ridicule him, or no one would think he was odd. He would never be called a preacher of righteousness if he had not done what God commanded or if he had done it in some secret or private way out of the sight of everyone else. No, by obeying God in the eyes of all, he showed love to those around him. It was a call for them to recognize their own sin and their own danger, to understand it, that they were really in trouble, and to believe God and to seek salvation. Every Every time they looked at this project that he was working on, it was a testimony to them that they were sinners and that they should believe the word of God, that judgment was coming, and they should seek a way of salvation. And lastly, his actions give him a place in this account of the nature and practice of faith. It stands as a monumental example for you and me. And we can best understand that just by moving to review those four points really quickly within the context of ourselves and our times. Let me ask you, how would you describe your times? I hear you talking about them. I hear you referring to them. I don't hear too many people saying, boy, these are the best of times. Not lately. I haven't heard that. How do you assess your times, beloved? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul tells Timothy, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Are we living in an age where self-love is pretty big on the agenda of the world you can say yes or no any no's okay lovers of money print me some more give me more where are those checks boasters look at me aren't I special look what I'm doing now I'm putting makeup on myself aren't you impressed how, by how beautiful I am, by the makeup I put on, how well I put it on. Look at me dance. You don't want to see me dance. But. <laughs> Proud, blasphemers. For you children, when I was your age, you could not use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a curse word in public on television or on the radio. You could not do it. It was forbidden. You see how much we've changed? Are we better? Now that we're free to use it any way we want, any time we want? Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. 
unforgiving, slanderers. What do we call that today? I have a fancy name for it. What do you call it when somebody says the wrong thing on social media? What happens? Microaggression. Microaggression. And what do you do to the person who says the wrong thing? Yep, there you go. Unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. All right, so you have your opinion of your times. Has it been revealed to you Has it been revealed to you that the world you're living in is ripening for judgment? I'm not saying like tomorrow, but has it been revealed to you somewhere that this world you're living in is moving towards a day of judgment? Thank you. I want to make sure you're with me on this. I'm not just uh, talking to myself here. Right. Where did you get that revelation from? From the Bible, which we call the word of God, right? What did Noah, who told Noah that a great judgment was coming? God, right? And what did he believe? The word of God. So you're kind of in the same place, aren't you? Aren't you? Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 3, Peter says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that same word, or by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Sounds exactly the same, doesn't it? Except that instead of water, it's going to be fire. God saw it but time to wash the earth with a flood, as he shall shortly do again with streams of fire says John Trapp. He destroyed the world then with water for the heat of lust. He will destroy it with fire for the coldness of love. It's a great line to remember, isn't it? Destroyed the old earth because of the heat, with, with water because of the heat of lust. And he will destroy this world with fire because of the coldness of love. And is it now, as it was then, in the days of Noah? Yes. Yeah. Are men and women careless and disinterested? Are they eating and drinking and giving in marriage as though there's no impending doom on the way at all? They are, aren't they? It's the same thing. That brings us to your call. In this maelstrom of wickedness, God has determined to show grace on you and through you 
to your families. And it's all of God's grace. He's chosen you out of this world of wickedness. And he's looked on you with that favor. That condescending love that has pulled you out of death and darkness and given to you life. You've been called by the unmerited favor of God to walk out of step with the world, contrary to the prevailing course of things. What does Romans 12 say? Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. While others sleep, beloved, you've been called to watchfulness. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says there in chapter 5 and verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security. While it's like it was in the days of Noah. There's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains came upon a pregnant woman. Come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers. That, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. That's our calling. Now what is the character of our service under that calling? Is your faith working in you effectually and producing that godly fear which moves you to action. The judgment's coming. You fathers and mothers, you're called on by God to build your covenant homes to the glory of God, to provide a godly context where the gospel is known, where the gospel is taught, and where the gospel is believed. You're called to that purpose. And the world looks on you and they think you're odd and you're peculiar and you're strange. But you're building that covenant context for the life of your children and for their children. And others of you are joining in with them. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're working at it plank by plank. We teach the word. You lead your families or your students in devotions and in memorization of the word of God. In knowing what it means to serve the Lord in thought and word and deed. 
And you go out and by deeds of love and truth in this dark world, you continue to bring that testimony and that witness to the world that judgment is coming and Christ is the answer. Christ is the way of salvation. Christ is the way of escaping that day of judgment and its consequences. And you're out there doing that, building it plank by plank. These are the covenant promises of the Lord. These are the things we trust in. These are the things we believe. These are the things we look to to carry us safely through. Each one of us who believes, beloved, is called to be a Noah in this age. That's what we're called to be. And if you want to put Noah in the past, and you want to think, well, that's an interesting story, and isn't it fun to talk about the animals and being on the ark and so on, you've missed the whole point of the story. It's not for you to make a monument out of Noah and think about what a great man he must have been. It's for you to see what it means to live by faith. For you to live by faith. He is the example set before you. He is part of the cloud of witnesses referred to in the next chapter of Hebrews that testifies to you of what it means to live for Christ in the world. We're trying to do everything God commands. We come short, obviously. We try to do all and everything he calls on us to do. But we put our trust in the covenant promises of Christ, not in our works. Just like Noah tried to do everything he could to make that boat secure. But we don't believe for a moment that it survived because Noah did such a good job. It survived because God promised you build that ark, you go into it, and I will keep you safe. I will deliver you. And in the context of our culture, doing these things often seems like a long, lonely, tedious, and tiresome job. And therefore, Hebrews 12 goes on to say this in verse 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See that you do not refuse him that speaks, he goes on to say in verse 25. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And lastly, and quickly here, what will be the result? And I appreciate your patience. By faith, 
you, being warned by God concerning events as yet not seen, in reverent fear, look to the Lord Jesus Christ for the saving of yourself and your household. And by that, beloved, you condemn the world and you become an heir of righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, the Lord says to Israel, You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And that's the message we have to bring to this dark and dying world. And we do it by living according to the word of God with with an earnest faith in the reality of what's happening around us. Judgment is coming. And Christ is the ark of salvation. And Christ alone. We'll continue in this series to look at these testimonies of faith and how they apply to us. We're right here at the beginning. But Noah sets a beautiful standard before us. And I hope it's an encouragement to every one of you. Every one of you who is building a covenant home. Every one of you who is trying to help covenant children to grow in grace and understanding. Every one of you who is teaching and laboring in the word. Every one of you who is bearing the gospel to others and trying to be a witness to others. You're doing the work of Noah. And I pray God will bless you in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for its instructive character. But Lord, we're dependent upon you to not only instruct us by the word, but Lord, to equip us and to strengthen us to fulfill that word. Lord, you've called us like Noah in this age. May we be like Noah in our faithfulness. May we walk with you. And Lord, may we do all that you command. And Lord, may we put all our trust and confidence, not in what we build, but in what you have promised for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's anyone here this morning, Lord, who's without hope in Christ. Father, we pray that you would press upon their hearts the reality that this judgment is coming. And it cannot be avoided, it cannot be escaped any more than the flood could be escaped. And that the one safe place is in the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the promises, in the covenant promises of Jesus Christ. And Lord, grant them the grace to flee to that protection for themselves and for their families. May all who know you, Lord, through Christ Jesus, Give thanks. Give thanks for your covenant promises. And Lord, rejoice in them. We thank you that these things are ours for Christ's sake, and it's in his name we give you that thanks and ask you, Lord, to bless us and to work in us, and Lord, to glorify yourself. Amen.